Morning. How's everyone today? Good. Good to see you all. Hey, I want to thank everyone who's um, prayed for us and our twins uh, since it's, it's been a month now since they were born, which is crazy. So your prayers have sustained us and God has answered them and the, the little ones have been growing. Um, we're really grateful to all of you. We're grateful to everyone who's brought us meals and visited us and organized cleaning and visits, i.e. Meredith. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for your love for us. We're very grateful. Um, let, me, let me pray before we get started. Um, Father, thank you so much for your day of worship and for this service and for the time we have to stand before you. We lift up to you today the Mensels and the Conrads. We ask for comfort for them, the loss of an uncle and a brother-in-law. Um, we lift up to you Seth and his grandfather as an extended family as they mourn the loss of Seth's uncle George. We ask that you would be with these families um, to work in and through the sorrow and to make your hope and comfort more known to them in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth this morning as I preach and bless the meditations of everyone here as they hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is another sermon in our American God series, which is about false religions and idols, things that might not have originated in America, but they're in America. They're in America. They're part of our culture. Um, last week, Nathan talked about entertainment, which is a big idol, can be, in our culture. And uh, today we're talking about Eastern religions, which, <laughs> which is almost a hilariously giant topic, because there's, there's, a, there's a ton of Eastern religions, right? It's not like we're going to talk about all of them. How, how, many, how many can we... Can we even name in this room? I was curious. Just start shouting out. Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism. Uh, good job. Anyone else? Shintoism. Did someone say Confucianism? Yeah, that's good. Did you say Sikhism? Wow, good job. I didn't think anyone would say Sikhism. Yeah, Zoroastrianism. What'd you say? Atomism. Animism. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Animism. There's also Jainism. A lot of these isms will not figure in today's sermon. Um, because, well, it's just too much. Most of what we'll be talking about is Hinduism, at least big swaths of Hinduism or Buddhism. Um, and each of these religions is complex and more or less unfamiliar to us, except that, like I said, concepts have gotten into our culture. Concepts like... Use the force, Luke. Star Wars. Star Wars is the first introduction to many of us as children to pantheism. Pantheism. What is the force? Well, the force, it's in you. It's all around you. It's this energy field, right? Really, you're part of it. It's part of you. It's like the substance of everything is the force. And if you could just tap into it, kind of become one with it. Well, that's a, that's a pantheistic idea. Um, pantheism says... Everything is divine. Everything is God. God is everything. You are part of everything. You are God. I am God. God is like a, a, a substance. Not personal, but like a substance that you're part of. Just like Luke could use the force or analogous. And you want to tap in, you know? Um, 
So there are a lot of there are a lot of Buddhists and Hindus, especially in the world. Fifteen to sixteen percent of the world population is Hindu. Five percent is Buddhist. Thirty-one percent is Christian. Twenty-five percent is Muslim. Fifteen percent is secular atheist. These are rough numbers, but still, that's that's twenty plus percent of people who are Buddhist Hindu. And then there's all the other isms we mentioned. Um, in the states, not many people percentage-wise follow these religions, at least they don't say, I am a Buddhist, I am a Hindu. One percent. One percent Buddhists, one percent Hindu, just like about one percent are Muslims. But, but you've got Star Wars. <laughs> you, you've, got, you've got other things. I think Star Wars is a great introduction. I should, I, I, let, me, let me qualify that. Star Wars is a very successful introduction to kids, right? It fires their imaginations. I like Star Wars. I'll probably show my little twins Star Wars some days. Not the new sequels. They stink. But, um, but, but that's to say, you should know when you're watching other religious ideas come into your kids' imaginations and get them interested in this idea of like, being able to tap into reality and manipulate it, right? Um, you, should, you should know that. Um, and I think a lot of people are attracted to the idea of reality as God or reality as divine, because then there's no, there's not someone you have to bow down to. There's like a thing that you already are, and you can just kind of learn how to be part of that thing. And it's, uh, it's nice not to have to bow. In the stubbornness of our hearts, we don't want to bow. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. And just remember as we go, that false religion, even the weird stuff that we're not familiar with, it starts, it all starts where? Bad people out there make it up? <laughs> it starts in our hearts. It's where it comes from. So we should remember that as we go. Um, all right. Here's a, here's a brief overview. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this as succinctly as I can. I'm going to oversimplify everything, and then we'll come back and kind of look at it, right, from the Bible. Okay. Um, Pantheism. We got pantheism, right? Everything's God. Here's another word for you. Monism. Monism. Monism says that everything is one. So everything's one. You put pantheism and monism together and you get what I was just talking about. Pantheistic monism. Not going to go around saying that all the time. Everything is one thing. Everything is one thing. Everything is God. You're God. I'm God. What, that's, that's Hinduism. That's a lot of Hinduism. Not all of it. What about Buddhism? Buddhism says... Everything's not God because nothing is divine. Everything's not God. You're not God. I'm not God. Um, in fact, you, you don't even have a soul, really. Uh, Buddhism, as it was formulated, is basic, basically atheistic, but it's monistic. So if this goes over your head, don't worry about it. It may become clearer as we go. It may not. Mon it's, it's monistic. Whatever everything is, it's not God, but whatever it is, it's all one thing, and you're part of it, and you're under some kind of illusion that it's not all one thing, and you need to dispel that illusion because it's all one thing, whatever it is. All right, so that's, that's Buddhism. But the other part of these religions is they're, here they are on the one hand, and they're pantheistic, or whatever they are, but they're also, we're getting a lot of, we're getting a lot of jargon today, this, they're also polytheistic. They're also polytheistic. So... There are a ton of other gods, sort of small g gods, maybe major, maybe important, maybe minor, in Hinduism 
in Buddhism. I want to say 33 major deities in Hinduism. And then maybe one of these, so this is like the Greek, the Greek and Norse gods, you know, god of war, a god of life, a god of death, a god of this and that, a goddess of this and that, a goddess of life, a goddess of death, right? All that stuff. But then maybe one of these gods has 10 different forms that he might take. And you might worship all of those different forms, almost like they're different gods, and they'll all have their own statues in various Hindu temples. And they just multiply like rabbits in Hinduism and Buddhism. In Hinduism, the gods, the number of gods, is in the millions. It's in the millions. You can't worship them all just because you don't have time. <laughs> so, they're, so they're in the millions. And you might say, wait, I thought, hold on. I thought everything was God. <laughs> so why then are there all these other gods? Well, everything is God. <laughs> you know, hold on, hold on to your horses. Everything is God. And, and... Just like there's all kinds of beings, like you and me, and beetles and cows, there's also gods. And it's all part of God, right? Or the fabric of reality, it's all part of that. But on the other hand, there's, there's stuff up and down the hierarchy of reality that's all part of that one thing, including these gods. Okay, there you go. So, this, and it's all, I mean, you can think of the Israelites, and the false gods they would set up, right? Baal, Ashtaroth, gods that you read about in the Bible. They like to worship other gods like the cultures around them. So we're familiar with polytheism. We're not as familiar with pantheism, except we are because Star Wars. Okay, so you've got, you've got all that stuff together. Now, the ultimate spiritual reality that everything is a part of, and that's a part of everything, that's what's really real. That's what's really real. That's what's really lasting. So the physical world, like this stuff, not so real. Not so good either. Um, you're kind of trapped in the physical world. The soul is more important. Or like Buddhism says, you don't have a soul. But in any case, functionally speaking, the soul is more important than the body in Buddhism too. Because the body's not important. <laughs> um, you want to be freed. You want to go into real reality, whatever that is. You want to get out of the physical forms that you're trapped in, all this stuff, you want to tap into real reality. Um, death is not going to help you do that. You might think, well, you're going to die and then you'll escape the physical world. No, you won't. Not in these religions. Because why? Because reincarnation. You are trapped. You're trapped in a, in a cycle of physical reincarnation. Now, this is the first thing you need to be saved from. So we've talked about kind of God and the nature of reality in very broad strokes. And now here's salvation. Salvation is, is about getting out of the hamster wheel. You are, you're going to keep coming back again and again after you die. You may come back as a king. That'd be cool. You may come back as a mosquito. Not as cool. You may come back as a daisy. You may come back as a jellyfish. You might come back as some kind of god or something. And you might come back on earth. But if you're a bad person, you might come back in one of the many hells or heavens that there are in these religions. Not the Christian heaven or hell, right? 
There's, in Buddhism, there are eight cold hells and eight hot hells, and there are places where you go to be tortured and tormented for thousands and thousands of years until you've paid for your sins. And then you can be reincarnated as something a little better. <laughs> so you need to be saved from this cycle. This is bad, bad news. And it, think of it as like a dream, a really, really bad dream that you cannot wake up from. You just keep popping up into the dream. Maybe sometimes it's a dream of awful torment. Maybe sometimes it's a dream of being a king or a god, but it's still a dream. Physical reality, you're bound to it. Got to get out. Got to get out. Uh, and you, you especially need to be saved from yourself. Buddhism and Hinduism say there's evil in the world due to people. And we say, well, duh. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, they don't, they don't really quite mean what we mean. Um, they mean that people act like individuals. They have their desires. We all have our desires. And these desires produce suffering for other people and for us. Let's say that I want a new car. I want a new car, and I am tormented because I can't afford it. Okay, so that's suffering. Let's say my desires cause me to steal the car. Uh-huh. So we see how suffering, which comes from desire, desire to suffering to, like, crime and evil stuff. Let's say, I mean, even, even something like food. Let's say that you are an Indian, country of India, and you're part of maybe Hinduism, and you don't have enough to eat, which is a common situation in, in India. You don't have enough to eat, and you're tormented by your desire for more food in a very physical way, but also in kind of a spiritual way, right? If you've ever been really hungry, it wears on you. And here you are, and you're suffering. You're suffering extra because of this desire. What if you could just be above that desire, even that desire for food? Ah, can you feel the peace settling into you? This, this is part of these religions. Getting rid of desire... Individual desire is important. Individual desire is bad. It's bad that you are a person. It's bad. If you were an individual who wanted things like food or a new car, the world would be at peace. And you would be at peace. And the goal, actually, of these systems is for you to be absorbed into reality. Because remember, there's one reality, there's one thing, you're just part of it, but you're kind of trapped. And which part of that is like, what's the nature of this trap? Well, you have a body, and that's a trap, because you, you can't get out of the physical form of your body, you keep coming back. But on the other hand, the trap is in your mind. You think that you're not part of the one thing. You're trapped in your mind. We have to free your mind. Sort of like the matrix, kind of. Except the goal isn't for you to free your mind into, into a place where your desires are fulfilled. The goal is for you to free your mind into a state where you're beyond desire. You lose your individuality. That's your goal. And that's salvation. That's salvation. Now, Hinduism says your soul is being absorbed into the cosmic, divine soul. And it's blissful. 
Buddhism, remember, says, yeah, you, know, you don't have a soul. But whatever you are, <laughs> whatever you are, um, you're kind of being snuffed out like a candle flame and entering a state, that, you know the state, nirvana. You're entering nirvana. And it's a place of peace and bliss. And you'll be happy except, will you be happy? Because will you be like, I'm still me. And I'm happy. No, no, this is kind of beyond. This is kind of beyond being an individual. This is kind of beyond our, our ability to process. This is like a drop of water, that's you, getting swallowed by the ocean. Good, now you're at peace. So, do you want to be saved? It sure beats the misery of those hells where you roast in an oven for 10,000 years. It beats maybe, I guess, the cruelty and misery of a world full of death and evil. So how do you get saved? How do you, little drop of water, how do you get back into the ocean? Well, how do false religions always do things? How do non-Christian religions always do things? Works. Yeah, it's all about you. You have to work hard. It's just like in Islam, you have to work hard. Hard, hard, hard. Through your own efforts. And there's, there's two kinds of work you could do. One kind has to do with karma, which is a word we know. That's another, it's another Eastern idea that has become a pretty popular part of our culture. It's karma. We, don't we talk like this, right? Um, you say something bad about someone at work. Your coworker's like, that's bad karma. You're being mean or something. You're mean to a kid at school. Someone else is like, hey, that's just like bad karma. You steal something, it's bad karma. What does that mean? Karma. It means there's consequences attached to your action. What goes around comes around just because you're going to pay for that. When you do bad things, bad things happen to you. You do good things, good things happen to you. I mean, eventually, it catches up to you, right? And karma is, is the idea that you're, what you do has a kind of energy, has a kind of energy. Positive energy, negative energy. And karma in these systems is what drags you down the ladder to like one of those hells or being reborn as a beetle. Okay? Good karma kind of pulls you up the ladder to being reborn as someone who does have enough to eat. Isn't that nice? Uh, or maybe a lion instead of a beetle. I don't know. That's karma. And karma just works. Not because there's a God who's judging and saying, well, you're bad. You're going to one of the hells. Oh, you're pretty good. You can have two meals a day instead of one in your next life. There's no God like that. Karma is just like how stuff works. It's just how stuff works. Just because. That is the way of things. Good deeds, good karma, bad deeds, bad karma. My wife, Megan, was a missionary in China for a long time. And she would visit Thailand, too. And she would, see, she would see some of the outworkings of this doctrine of karma in the culture. Have you ever heard of a prostration? Do you, all, you know what it, do you kids know what it means to prostrate yourselves? Prostrate, to prostrate yourselves is like to bow. Like, but to bow, like, not just, 
not to take a bow, but to like go all the way down onto the ground. So prostrations, I think I'll try to demonstrate one. Here we go, let's see. So a prostration is this. Prostration is you just go flat all the way down and you get up again and you keep going like that. And she would see old women in, what, China? Prostrating themselves on the ground, like on these, on these dirt roads for miles. They're prostrating themselves as they go towards a Buddhist temple. Why? Get better karma. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a good deed. It's merit in these systems. So you just, there you go. Uh, and what else did she see? That's, that's, a, that's a result of this doctrine of, of karma. Well, what she saw is a culture where when people are suffering, go to response, it's not to help them. It's not to help them. Why not? Why not? Why wouldn't you help someone who's starving or suffering? It's their karma. It's their karma. Uh, I'm sure that you did something to deserve that. And if I interfere, that's not going to help you kind of work it off and get to a better reincarnation. And so, kind of on your own. Now I'm oversimplifying. Are there Buddhists and Hindus? Is there, are there ideas in these religions that talk about compassion? And if, Yeah, yes. But what's the actual functional outworking of this religion for most people? Well, it's that. You're stuck. It's merciless. Karma is merciless. It's a natural outworking of this idea, okay? There's a lot of awful misery. No one's going to help. Okay, what other kind of work? So that's all karma. That's like your deeds, your merit. And that, that, that involves not just like doing good things or not doing bad things, but also, you know, the prostrations, kind of harsh treatment of the body. It might involve fasts. It might involve don't eat cows. That's famous, right, in Hinduism. Cows are sacred. You don't eat those. But there's dietary restrictions that often that go along with religions like this. There's a harsh treatment of the body. So the other kind of work you need to do to be saved is enlightenment. You need to achieve enlightenment. Enlightenment. It means the light goes on inside you. That's enlightenment. It's about coming to that state that I was already talking about where you realize, wait, I am one with everything. That's the truth. That's the truth. And the, when I use the word truth, you have to understand that truth is not important to Eastern religions as it is to us. Truth is like two plus two is four. Two plus two is not five. Truth is Scott Schutte loves board games. Therefore, he does not hate board games. Truth is it's this and not that. And I make an argument and we come to this and we realize, oh, that's true. We all have to agree on that because that's the truth. This is not, this is not the way that these religions go. This is not what they're focused on. Now, you can find many truths and you can find many scriptures in the East. As they have thousands of gods, they have thousands of holy books. Different parts of the traditions use different holy books. There's a lot of them. Uh, but, but truth, well, the idea... The idea of enlightenment is not that you know true things like we know Jesus is the Son of God, right? Jesus came to save sinners. Those are precious truths to us. 
What you want is to get beyond using your mind and forming concepts because that's part of what keeps you in this illusion that you are not one. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but truth or arguments or thinking through things, it's like a ladder. You climb the ladder, you get to the higher reality, you kick the ladder away because you're up there. You don't need that anymore. Done. Or, or, in some formulations of these religions, it's, it's like, it's more like the fact that you're thinking about these things and concepts and trying to get to the truth is actually a wall. You need to kick it down. Stop that. Turn that off. Turn that off or you will never be free. Never. You want to be enlightened. You want to be enlightened. You want to be in touch with real reality. It's a state of being. So once you knock down that wall or climb that ladder, what happens? Well, you're free from the cycle of reincarnation. You're free. You're out of the hamster wheel. You can let go of all that desire, all your individuality. So, like I mentioned before, part of the way you do this, it involves your body. Harsh treatment of the body for getting merit, but also what you do with your body is part of how you achieve enlightenment. It's part of how you bring yourself, right? It's kind of like taking LSD or something. It puts you in a different state. Puts you in a different state of consciousness. When you have long fasts, you go into a different mindset, right? If you've ever fasted, you know it sort of changes how you feel and how you think. That's the thing that fasting does. And so Eastern religions are going to use this to their advantage to try to manipulate the body into getting in touch with higher, with real reality, higher reality. If you use certain kinds of breathing techniques, if you stretch your body into certain postures, you can make it so that the energy at the base of your spine begins to travel up your spine and then it makes contact with the other energy centers in your body, and as you breathe in deeply, you, you enter a state of more real reality, and you begin to become enlightened. Now, you realize that what I just described also applies to something else that's very popular in our culture. What did I just, yes, I just described yoga. I just described, I know that some of you here do it or have done it or whatever. So here's what I want to say to you. Yoga is an ancient spiritual discipline or philosophy of Hinduism. Yoga is an entire philosophy of spiritual things and how you get them. Yoga is not primarily a form of bodily exercise. Yes, we use it that way. No, that's not all that it is. Yes, a lot of other things go along with it. It's about, it's about using your body as a channel to attain spiritual things. I want to say that phrase again. It's about using your body as a channel to attain spiritual things, which is a dangerous thing to do. If you ask me, hey, pastor, are you saying that a yoga stretch is like a sin? I'm, I, I think there's plenty of yoga stretches you could probably do that might be helpful. Probably they discovered some good stretches. They have a lot of cool stretches. If, you're ask, if, if, if you ask me, are you saying that it's spiritually dangerous to do yoga, to be part of a yoga class. Yes, that is what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a dangerous thing. I'm saying it takes discernment. I'm saying you should watch out. I'm saying there's a lot that goes with it. 
there's a lot that it's for. What? If I just go to a yoga class and all we're doing is stretching and that's all we talk about, that's, that's bad. I, look, I'm not going to answer that question. I want you to be equipped to discern what's going on. I want you to know where this comes from. It has a very long history. It's part of a, a culture and a tradition that uses the body, that manipulates it like a machine to get to spiritual ends. And you should be very careful. You should be very careful. I'm happy to talk more if any of that bothers someone in here. I don't see anyone looking really angry, but uh, Jesus cares about our bodies. He calls it a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's in 1 Corinthians. He cares about what we do with our bodies. It's important to him. It's important to him. And there's, there's always good and evil things we can do with our bodies, right? But as Christians, what we don't do is try to use our bodies as like a channel to get the Holy Spirit to <gasps> flow into us. We'd even call that blasphemy. The Holy Spirit is not a force you manipulate. Holy Spirit is a person. Okay. Well, I've already started moving into some contrasts, haven't I? When it comes to God, we understand this is not who God is. <laughs> we understand God is the creator and not the created. We understand these things are different. God is up here, and we're down here. And that separation will always be there. False religions want to not have to bow to God. Like I, like I mentioned earlier, there, there is something we should easily recognize in this. Not having to bow to God, or, I don't know, it, they also want little gods. They actually, they want to not bow to God on the one hand because all false religion puts us in the place of God. And you can see that in the idea of pantheism. I'm divine and you're divine. It's all kind of on one, one plane. But on the other hand, we, it's hard to suppress, it's impossible to suppress the way that God made us, which is to worship something, anything. So if I won't worship God and submit to him, if I'm like, no, I'll be the standard. I'm just as divine as anything. Well, guess what you'll find? You are going to actually still worship a lot of little g-gods. A lot. Whether it's millions of Hindu deities, whether it's government, or your mom, or your dad, or your kids, or money, you will worship things. You can't help it. The only question is who? That's it. And in Hinduism and Buddhism, you get both. You get no, there's no God. Like, I'm God. You're God. We're all God. And then you get, there's a lot of gods. You're going to bow down to Buddha. You're going to treat Buddha like a God. I know I said Buddha's an atheist system, right? But it doesn't matter. You're going to bow down to Buddha. You're going to bow down to this and that idol. That's how it's going to go. Never underestimate your own desire to wriggle away from worshiping God as he presents himself. If you want to know how this shows up for us as Christians, I think it shows up in the way that we feel, I'm going to use the word feel, when we come to scripture and we think, I don't like that. I want a way around that. I want a way around it. I don't want it that way. I want you, God, to be different than you are. I want something I can, at least maybe I could ignore this. Or I could say, that's just Hebrew culture. Or I could say, you know, that was back then. Or I could say, whatever. We actually are looking for ways to get away from God. 
Even as his sons and daughters, we struggle against that. And we need to know that about ourselves. It's helpful to look at these religions and remember that. That's in our hearts too. That's in our hearts too. How about karma? What's comforting about karma? Look, left to our own devices, without God reaching down and making himself known to us, I fully believe that you and I would rather spend a million years in the hamster wheel of karma. Because at least at the end of that time of misery and torture, at least it's my hamster wheel, I'm in control, could be kind of, <laughs> but it's mine, it's mine. Submitting to God is not something that we do as sinners. It's something we rely on God to do in us, to change our hearts. We can't save ourselves through good works. That's a fantasy of karma. And the good works that we come up with are ridiculous anyway. Years ago, I had a coworker who I think had read about Jainism. Jainism is one of the ones the isms were not, we haven't really said much about or anything maybe so far. And he talked about being a really good person in terms of never even stepping on a bug. Never even stepping on a bug. A bug. Well, so much for man-made religion. Good for you. You didn't step on a bug. God knows our hearts. Stepping on a bug isn't part of sin and righteousness. It's not. But we'll make it a rule so that you get bad karma for swatting a fly. That's how crazy we are. We want control. We want control of how we get saved. God is who he is. We've been going through Romans as a church. And if I, as I go through scriptures here, they're probably not going to be in any order. They may not even appear. That's my fault. Got them very late to Brandon. We've been going through Romans, and Romans 3, 23 to 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Only in Christianity is there actual justice and only in Christianity does God reach down and grab us and save us. All the other religions, you're reaching and you're climbing and you're doing the prostrations like the old women on the, on the, the dusty road and that's your life. That's your life. You can be maybe smug and think you're a good enough person, or you could live in despair as you work and work and work and work. That's false religion. Climb, 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 or I don't need to climb. I'm good enough. Well, pick your poison. Hypocrisy, despair. God reaches down and saves us. That's true religion. It's very different from anything else you find. Don't ever believe someone who tells you all religions are basically the same. That's very silly. Our religions but Christianity are basically the same. That's true. Let me, let me address a few more things. So the way that these Eastern religions think about the body and enlightenment and the physical world and all of that, Colossians 2, 16 to 23, Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Asceticism is 
disciplines that are sort of harsh and difficult, like fasting for a really long time over and over and over again, or being on your knees for 24 hours without shifting your position, asceticism and things like that. Asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. The head is Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's a lot of stuff in that passage, but at the least, just skimming it quickly, we can see that this idea that the body is supposed to be used as a channel to spiritual realities is old. It's old because Paul is attacking it. It's in the church. Right after Jesus dies, it's already there in the church. Jesus dies, comes back from the dead, sends out the apostles, the church is founded, and boom, there you have this idea. Right there. Uh, treat your body harshly. Don't eat this or that. Put yourself, if I, can go, if I can extrapolate from this a little, put yourself in a mental state where you can have visions of angels. Like if you treat your body harshly, you can get there. You get the special spiritual access to higher realities. And this is all about human teachings. That's what Paul calls it. Human precepts and teachings. Things people make up. Man-made religion. Kind of typical. And it actually has an appearance of wisdom. That dude is intense. He hasn't gotten off his knees or had a bite to eat for days. Whoa. He's a serious spiritual man. No. No. They have an appearance of wisdom, but they're no use in cleansing your spirit. There's no use for holiness. The last part of that verse says they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I'm going to beat the flesh and I'm going to tamp it down and I'm going to hurt it because I'm a spiritual. Paul's like, that didn't do anything for you. Not a thing. It didn't help you not lust. It didn't help you not be angry. It didn't help you not be greedy. Nope. Wrong. That's not how this works. You can't manipulate your body to make yourself spiritual. Can't do it. You can care for your body, but you can't manipulate it. Second century AD, there was a movement you may have heard of called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, what's that? Well, it's a Christian heresy. It's a twisted and false version of Christian teachings. Gnosticism says a lot of things, but some of them are like what I just read in Colossians. Physical stuff, oh, it's bad. It's bad. It's polluted. It's degraded. Why? Because it's physical. This disgusting flesh. This disgusting matter. Gnosticism is like the spirit. The spiritual world. That's what matters. You can't redeem your body. You can't redeem creation. It's gross. You've got to throw it away. You got it. The goal is to like transcend it. Spiritual things are pure. And you can kind of use your body like you can beat it and hurt it to get to spiritual things. Or you can kind of go and do whatever you want and eat all you want and have sex and stuff. And that could also be a way to have spiritual things. It doesn't matter because the body is just the body, right? Gnosticism has all that. Be sure not to eat certain foods or be sure to be a glutton or 
Meditate until you achieve enlightenment. That's a Gnostic idea. Meditate on the true nature of reality so you can become one with it. Which sounds like Colossians and it sounds like Eastern stuff. Gnosticism is a Western thing. I guess these, these, this Eastern stuff is not entirely Eastern. It seems like it's more just human. Like it's more just the kind of stuff that we make up. So what about the physical world? We're about to get to this in Romans. Romans 8, 18 to 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. God made our bodies. God made the physical world. He created all things good. There is a redemption for your body. Physical stuff is not bad. There is a redemption for creation. We're not looking forward to a bodiless existence. We're looking forward to the resurrection from the dead. Now, I, I want to talk about this idea of enlightenment for a minute. We actually, we have another word for this way of thinking. And this has been around for a long time too. And the word is mysticism. Mysticism. There's, there's Christian mysticism. There's been Christian mystics for a long time. There's, there's sort of, there's pagan mysticism. There's Eastern mysticism, which we've been talking about. Mysticism, mysticism is about meditation and other techniques that you do to bring you sort of in the depths as, uh, of your own soul to an experience of God, like a higher experience of God, where ideas and words and concepts, they just kind of fall away, like I was already talking about. This is in the West, too. It's been in the church. It's still in the church. Mysticism. What you want is that higher plane of spiritual existence. That's what you want. And so, well, that's, that's just, that's not Christian. That's like a that's, a, that's a religious idea and a set of techniques that you can find across religions. It works like the same way wherever you go. Sometimes it sounds good. Sometimes it's dressed up very well. Oh, a higher experience of Jesus. That's what you're selling me. Like, I'm not going to be on the normal level of a regular Christian anymore. I'm going to go up to the special level. I'm going to get the special sauce. I'm going to be... I'm going to be with God in a special way. You could be too, I mean, if you were willing. But you have to really get your mind there, you know? Like it's, not everyone can do it. That's, that's mysticism. And that is the culture, that pride, right? That pride is the culture that it creates in the church. It happens everywhere. This, am I saying we don't have a special experience of Christ as Christians, of God's love that is maybe indescribable? No, I'm not saying that. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I would call that enlightenment. True enlightenment. 
a lot about light in that passage. But not the same kind of enlightenment. Romans 5.5 God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What God does for us in Jesus leads to an experience of who God is on what we could call a mystical level. A level that's hard to explain. God gives us the light of the knowledge of his glory through Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God pours God's love into our hearts. That's beautiful, it's real, mystical. You could use the word mystical. It's not mysticism. Why? Why not? Well, are we abandoning the concepts of who Jesus is as we have this experience of his love? No, in Christianity, how do we know God's love? How do we more and more come to know God's love and even have joy and have experiences of God's love? Is it through abandoning ideas and thoughts and just trying to breathe deep, go down into your spirit? There you will meet the voice of God and the Christ who is in you and the light will... No, no, no. Scripture talks about this. How do we do it? Well, Scripture itself is a big part of the answer. Scripture itself is a big part of the answer. Scripture teaches us how to think. Our, our knowledge of God's love and our experience is very tied to how we think of God and how we let the Word of God transform our hearts and our minds, right? Can't get away from that. There's truth. The Bible talks a lot about meditating. It does. But not Eastern meditation, not mystical meditation. It talks about scriptural meditation. Psalm 119, 15 to 16. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. All right, just a couple more things and we're done. In, in these Eastern systems, just like in the mysticism I was describing, you, you want to be absorbed into God, right? You want to be absorbed. Individual existence goes away and that's not the goal of the Christian faith. Maybe I don't even need to say that. <laughs> it's not the goal of the Christian faith. There, there's, there's an idea that goes along with this, though, which is that your desires are kind of bad. And that is a tricky thing. Some form of that is around in the church, the idea that your individual desires are maybe sinful, they're maybe selfish. Maybe you should get rid of them. Because when you want things, isn't that, like, selfish? Have you ever heard that? Heard that way of thinking or talking? You, yeah, you just want things for yourself. But if you were like God, you would be selfless. You'd be selfless. Like Jesus was selfless. Have you heard this kind of thing? I've heard a lot of it. I've heard a lot of it. Now, I just want to address this real quick. Luke 23, 39 to 43 tells us about the time Jesus was on the cross and there are two criminals crucified next to him. And one of them is insulting Jesus. But the other one has a different take. Let me read this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, 
Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There's a lot that contradicts Eastern religion in that, isn't, isn't there? I don't think that guy had very good karma at the time that he was saved. <laughs> it looks like it didn't, uh, that doesn't even seem fair. He didn't even finish the torture of dying on a cross before Jesus said, ah, you're saved, it's okay, you're going to be fine. <laughs> and it sounds like he was going to have an individual existence, doesn't it? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Yeah, he's not going to be absorbed into God like water into the ocean. The other thing you hear in his words is what? It's so obvious, we don't even think of it. He wants to live. He has a desire. The desire is not to die. It's to live. It's to live. And Jesus is very happy to hear that he has that desire and very happy to give him what he wants. The Bible never teaches that wanting things is a sin. Not ever. Not ever. Desire is not bad. What's bad is evil desire. And we have a lot of that. Our desires are twisted. Often we think we want a good thing. And then we look back and we're like, that actually was selfish. It was self-destructive. <laughs> that was just me wanting some kind of gratification. That wasn't actually me wanting a good thing. How often do we do that? Your kids are like, I want more ice cream. You won't give it to me. Well, kid, your desire is stupid. <laughs> it's bad. You're not getting more ice cream. I know what's best for you. I have a better idea of what's good than you do. You think it's a good desire and I'm so mean, or Susie got more than me, and that's not fair. Well, it doesn't, no. Your desires are wrong, and we're like those little kids. Our desires are often selfish and sinful and evil. But in an Eastern system, desire is more like the problem itself. Desire causes suffering, remember? John 10, 10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Matthew 13, Jesus is telling parables of the kingdom. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Yes, I've got it. Got what I want. That's Christianity. Christianity is, takes, takes the desires and it ramps them way up. Ramps them way up. You, some of you have heard this quote. This is from C.S. Lewis. This is a famous quote. My favorite, maybe, outside the Bible about desire and how Jesus talks about it. He says, The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine 
what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think that's pretty great. That's pretty dead on. The Bible wants us to deny ourselves because there's something much better. There's something much better. They need to be changed, our desires do. They need to be purified. We need to stop having sinful desires, and that's hard. What's the, what's the chief thing as we close that a Christian desires and finds pleasure in? What is it? What is it? Well, I want to say it's the opposite of the chief pleasure of pantheism. Chief pleasure of pantheism, if you want to call it that, is just being absorbed and being one with the divine, right? Or with whatever there is to be one with, okay? Well, the chief pleasure for us is that Jesus is our God, always and forever, above us, distinct from us, above us, better than us, higher than us, more glorious than us. That's our glory and our joy, that we're his creatures, that we're his people, we're his sheep that he saved. We're not on his level. If we were on his level, that would be miserable. That would be pathetic. God is God. We will never bridge the gap between us and God. Never. And if we did, how boring. You and me, we're divine. God is all there is and we're part of that. And so here you are with yourself forever, I guess. Sounds terrible. Sounds terrible. So one day, one day you and I are going to be fully enlightened. 100%. It's not through Eastern meditation or any kind of mysticism or an altered state of consciousness. It's through the return of Jesus Christ to save us. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Let's hold on to this. Let me pray. Father, you are a great and mighty God. We are so grateful that you have drawn us through Jesus and that you have given light to our hearts, our dark hearts, through the light of Jesus Christ, who you sent in the world to be the light of the world and to save sinners who are trapped in the darkness of their sins. God, we want to be near that light. We want to value what you have given us. We want to praise you. We want to know you. We want to seek you. We want to deny ourselves and take up our crosses so that we can be fully enlightened by the light of Christ and live with him forever. Please help us to attain to this joy through faith in the one who loved us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.